the song You Can Get Anything You Want from Malice's Restaurant, composed by Arlo Guthrie and released in 1967, was not a song about Alice or her restaurant. It is a song that exposed the hypocrisy of the U.S. government's position as it related to the Vietnam War. We play just the chorus because the song is 18 and a half minutes long, and we don't have time to play an entire 18 and a half minute song on a 59 minute program. So we'll give you the gist of the story. In 1965, the military draft required all 18-year-old men to report to a draft board, take a physical and a psychological exam to determine eligibility. When the psychologist asked Arlo Guthrie why he wanted to go to Vietnam, Guthrie emphatically announced he wanted to kill. The psychologist did not grasp the facetious nature of Guthrie's answer and declared him fit to serve in the military. However, when asked if he had ever been arrested, Guthrie admitted that he had been arrested for littering. The military declared him morally unfit to serve. So killing good, littering immoral. We get solutions of violence, and our guest today, Francesco da Vinci, understands that hypocrisy, as evidenced by the fact that da Vinci was willing to go to jail rather than serve in a military that was waging an immoral war. Welcome, friends and neighbors. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP, LP, 106.5 FM. This is Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is a subcommittee of the Global Fellowship of Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational program. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. I'm Jamie McMillan with Jim Johnson. We're your hosts and producers of Solutions to Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Our guest today is Francesco da Vinci. Welcome, Francesco, to Solutions to Violence. Thank you. Francesco da Vinci is a Los Angeles-based journalist, book author, and nonviolent activist. He was a conscientious objector during the Vietnam War era. He founded a peace group in San Diego called Nonviolent Action. Francesco da Vinci is currently developing a book, a documentary, and a feature film on conscientious objection. So, Francesco, you are a journalist and a book author. You yes. tell us about Tell us about your book as, as well as the journals and newspapers that have published your, your articles. Sure, thank you. Uh, the book I'm writing is called I Refuse to Kill, and it tells the story of my conscientious objection to the Vietnam War. Although it's my story, I also pay tribute to the COs throughout American history because they, you know, they gave so much, they sacrificed, they faced prison. Many of them lost their freedoms and sometimes their lives. So um, that's why I want to pay tribute to them in my writing and in a documentary and feature. Uh, as far as my photojournalism career goes, uh, the publication I enjoyed shooting for the most was Newsweek magazine. And ironically, before I even worked for Newsweek, they covered my piece work. What were the issues that concerned you? And, and uh, Well, I would say focusing mainly on uh, social justice and peace through nonviolence you know, which are extremely relevant today. You know, I think that it's a life and death issue, not only on individual levels, but for the whole planet. And I believe the best hope for the survival of humanity is when we start to replace methods of violence with methods of nonviolence, you know, the principles that Gandhi spoke of and um, the civil rights implemented, and then the peace movement stood on the shoulders of the civil rights movement and uh, implemented them with, uh, through Dr. King and the movement. One of my main motivations, you know, for making 
there's such an urgent call is that the public doesn't realize that there have been many advisors to our presidents that have called for using nuclear weapons. Um, and I have a, a really a telling soundbite, if you don't mind if I read it, from the tape of uh, President Nixon that was uh, released. Is it sure. okay if I read that? Sure, absolutely. Well, President Nixon had a chilling conversation with Henry Kissinger, and the whole thing was recorded, and this is verbatim. President Nixon said, I still think we ought to take the Vietnam dikes out now. Will that drown people? He asked Kissinger. And Kissinger says, replies, about 200,000 people. And Nixon says, the nuclear bomb, does that bother you? Then Nixon adds, the only place where you and I disagree, he's talking to Kissinger, is with regard to the bombing. You're so concerned about the civilians, and I don't give a damn. I don't care. So, you know, it's kind of a, it should be a wake-up call for us to be vigilant and give more serious attention to building a culture of nonviolence. Yeah, I've read that. That is so amazing. You said something about photos. You're doing photos. Can you tell us a little about the photos that you take and, and how they relate to your, your work? Yeah, I try to use my uh, platform as a photographer uh, to promote causes like social justice. And, you know, less, we go to war way too easily. So uh, there's not enough accountability for the way we go to war. And so I, in my photography and in my writing, I, I try to make the public more aware uh, of life and death decisions uh, that are of great influence. You know, my parents uh, were a big influence for my background. Uh, they were pacifist. So how did you illustrate the issue with a photograph? How would I illustrate it? Right. Yeah, I, well, my background made me especially sensitive. So I would relay what I was learning in terms of photography for visual images, because sometimes, you know, you can write about something, but when you see the graphic picture, remember how the images of the Vietnam War were coming right into our living room. And I right. think it politicized many people. The same could be said of the civil rights movement when you saw people being clubbed and water hoses and attacked dogs. And, you know, going back to Gandhi, you know, the, the brutality that uh, the nonviolent activists faced mobilized uh, the population. And that's what happened in America. So um, I had a perspective uh, because I, I was fortunate to have parents that looked at the global picture, not just their community picture. And I thought they made me aware of being uh, an American citizen and a world citizen. Francisco, you're a political activist. So briefly describe the path that led you to become a political activist. And you talked about your parents being a pacifist. I assume that had something to do with your thinking here. Yeah, well, there were a number of wake-up calls. You know, I was kind of oblivious to most issues. Uh, I was, my family was wealthy at the time, and I lived in a segregated neighborhood of Virginia. So it was a slow awakening. But at the University of Maryland in the mid-60s, you know, I was beginning to feel responsible that I should speak out. My best buddy, in contrast to my leaning toward conscientious objection, was serving in Vietnam. And I felt that even though we were totally different politically, he was, you know, acting on his beliefs and I wasn't doing anything. So that, that was a big influence right there. And then, of course, the more I learned about the Vietnam War and all the deception behind it, that uh, we were supporting a corrupt dictatorship in South Vietnam, and that uh, both Johnson and Nixon knew the war was a lost cause, but only out of stubborn determination not to be the first president to lose a war. You know, they relentlessly escalated the conflict. And then 
that's the cost, you know, for their pride of 58,000 young American lives. Average age of death was 23, and at a cost of 3 million Asian lives. And that's not to mention, you know, the money, the billions of dollars that could have been used here at home on people needs. So, Francisco, you were a student at the University of Maryland in the, in the mid-1960s. Uh, you opposed U.S. intervention in the Vietnam War. You applied for a conscientious objector status. Yes. Why? Well, I had the background. My parents influenced me for sure about they were pacifists, so the, it seemed arrogant, the idea of taking another one's life for your own beliefs. And so that was definitely my background. But you know, eventually I did what I was granted conscientious objection status, but it was a long and rough road. I mean, one of the factors is where your draft board is, where your home community is, and whether that community is liberal or not. If you had a draft board in Virginia, which I did, it was very tough. If you had a draft board in San Francisco, it was opposite atmosphere. So that was an unfair factor where you were from. Also, if you had an organized religion in your background, it was very helpful compared to a personal set of ethics. And that was my position in the latter. I had a personal set of ethics, being spiritual but non-religious. Um, that made my CO case, you know, it looked like it was going to be impossible to win and uh, guaranteed, you know, to pull up the monopoly card that says go directly to jail. Um, my draft board you know, was very pro-war in Virginia, like I mentioned. And my role models were Gandhi, Einstein, and Dr. King. And what my draft board found particularly irritating was my personal religion based on the principles of nonviolence. It was very hard for them to accept that at all. In fact, it engendered their hostility. Uh, they looked at it, me as an unpatriotic traitor. And uh, I had to explain all this in writing form on my CO statement. And I have a an amusing tidbit here that uh, I would relate it to from the atheist humor writer, uh, Dave Barry. And the way he put it was, this is a quote, the problem with writing about religion is that you run the risk of offending sincerely religious people, and then they come after you with machetes. So in, in a sense, that's what I did with my draft board. I, I uh, piqued their uh, hostility because uh, they, they were, their job was to see if I was sincere, but many draft boards didn't do their job. Uh, they had such a bias against even the application of a CO that they were bent on sending them to prison, regardless of whether they were CO. They didn't really give the COs a fair chance. This, this happened over and over again. So um, I ended up being faced with a uh, five-year prison sentence because they were going to make an example out of me. I was a prominent activist, and uh, my case dragged on for over three years. And then finally, on the very last appeal, just before being sentenced to prison, the state director of Selective Service in Virginia overturned in my favor, and I did alternative work as a civilian instead at a barrio in San Diego. And if, I, if you don't mind, I just, just want to pay a quick tribute to that state director, because he was the first African-American anywhere in America in that position. And he was, wasn't supposed to rock the boat. And he went against the Nixon administration. He went against the Virginia Selective Service System. And he did the right thing. He saw the justice of my case. And he went out on a limb and backed me. So I, his name was Ernest Fears Jr. I just wanted to pay quick tribute to him. He passed away. But 
I still pay tribute. Absolutely, yeah. No, well, thanks for that. We appreciate it. You know, in the 60s, for men like yourself and Jim and I, the, the military draft was the law that confronted all three of us. Uh, that yeah. was, uh, I have a, a kind of an interesting or funny experience with that, too, but we won't go into that. Your anti-war activism got you suspended from Alliant University in San Diego, also the Civil Liberties Union. ACLU got you reinstated in the university as a student. Tell us about your experience there. Yes. Um, well, I would speak out in classes. We would have workshops on the war and teach-ins and that kind of thing. But my professor at the time was strongly pro-war and was not you know, open to other points of view. And when he learned that I was a conscientious objector and peace activist, uh, he went out of his way to uh, get the administration to expel me in the middle of the, my grad school. And I had great grades. And then um, it was, he spoke out in classes against my views and used my name. And in the classes that he taught, he pointed to me. So uh, it was a rough experience, but the ACLU gave him a choice and said, you know, you, you can't uh, expel Francesco just for his political views or we'll take you to court on this. And then they reinstated me. But that was the atmosphere it was very polarized. You know, we think it's polarized now. It was extremely more polarized in the 60s. Yeah. So were there any other ramifications of that when you got back into school? Well, when I went to Maryland, a professor there walked to my desk when he heard my position. This is a class of over 100 students, and he made a mock gun with his hand, and he pointed to my forehead, and he said, give me a gun, and I'll gladly shoot any CO I see. Now, that's another telling example, the atmosphere. University of Maryland. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So, Francisco, in the, in the latter 60s, you participated in the March on the Pentagon, the Poor People's Campaign, in the March at People's Park in Berkeley. You helped organize the Vietnam moratoriums. Why all this political activism? Well, I felt a moral duty to, you know, to do what I could to help stop the killing and the maiming on both sides of the war. There were plenty of you know, political reasons, but it was really from my heart. The political reasons included the dictatorship, you know, in South Vietnam, uh, the atrocities on both sides, the lies from the Johnson and Nixon administrations. But, you know, what guided me most were the humanistic reasons. I feel like we're all one family, basically. And I'd say one of the things that most impacted me was, you know, on TV, would, as you know, we'd constantly hear the body counts on TV. And then there were these images, these graphic images of children with napalm burning on their backs. And I would say that had a huge impact on goading me uh, to not be complicit with silence. Yeah. So the historian Charles B. Dinetta, David Hammerstam, Melvin Lepper, Walter Isaacson, Evan Thomas, many others explained that the United States lost the Vietnam War. Many, including lots of Vietnam veterans, would just as soon forget about it. So why, Francisco, bring it up now. Why is the history of the Vietnam War important in our collective consciousness? It's crucial, you know, that we learn from our mistakes so we don't repeat them. So, you know, I think it's extreme, you know, that war cost millions of lives. And, you know, we're talking about amputations, the waste of billions that could have been used here at home. 
the vets, you know, they're dealing with lifetime trauma. The 60s generation had some great lessons. And this generation is not very aware of what happened in the 60s and the sacrifices that were made. And I want to bring them today because they're so relevant. It's not enough to have more weapons, you know, than anyone else in our country, uh, in, you know, in the world. America is standing for that. It's not enough, you know, that we have more material things than anyone else. Sure, we like the comfortable life. But in the 60s, you know, we had a new message that we brought to bear to the older generation. Uh, we wanted America, you know, to come back to its core values, you know, to be a, a moral example uh, to the whole world. You know, the materialism was, we were fortunate that we had materialism that would, gave us the freedom uh, to work for causes. That was one of the gifts of that, the affluence of the time. But at heart, you know, it was uh, to make our society uh, more humanistic. Living in San Diego, you, you founded a group called Nonviolent Action. That was, uh, this was in the mid-60s. Yeah. Nonviolent Action was supported by Cesar Chavez, an American labor leader, community organizer, businessman, and he was a Latino American civil rights activist. You were also supported by Joan Baez, a popular folk singer. These two were very visible anti-war activists. Does the uh, nonviolent action still exists today, and, and uh, what purpose does it purpose does it serve? Sure, and you know I was always so grateful and honored that uh, Cesar Chavez and Joan Baez both got behind our uh, one of our nonviolent campaigns. Cesar actually helped give me my start. I was working with the farm workers, and he said you can share our San Diego office as you get started. And I'll never forget that one day Caesar said to me, he actually, he was talking to me and then he stopped and turned after he was starting to leave. And he said, nothing will ever stop peace and justice, will it? And, you know, it was one of those special moments that I I just never forgot. And it inspired me. And I formed this group I called Nonviolent Action. The reason I chose that name is that many people think of nonviolence as passive. You know, it's, it's not, it's, uh, you know, it's following an obligation to be active and to counter injustice and violence. Uh, the name of your show, Solutions to Violence, you know, it, it takes vigilance. So I, I wanted to instill that in the name, nonviolent action, instead of just using the nonviolent phrase. So basically, you know, John, Joan Baez was asked about nonviolence, and she said, well, basically, it just comes down to organized love. That's really what nonviolence is. So, you know, unfortunately, Nonviolent Action, my organization, it doesn't exist anymore. But at the time, it helped inspire hundreds of volunteers. It became a movement in itself, and it it waged support for the farm workers. Uh, We leafleted the draftees and provided them with free legal counseling because they didn't know their rights, especially minorities. And then we had this consolation project that asked voters in San Diego it was a non-binding vote, and we asked them, do you want the aircraft carrier that's docked here in your port, the USS Constellation, to go back to Vietnam, or do you want it to stay here for peace? Because President Nixon was saying, you know, the people are still on board for the war, and we were saying, no, we don't think so. Let's hold a vote. And so we held a vote, and the vast majority wanted that carrier to stay home. And what was very surprising is that the majority of the crew on that carrier voted for the carrier to stay home and not perpetuate that war and the bombing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 
you know, it made a dent, and now it's time to carry on that process of saying no to war. Well, just as a aside, what difference did the vote make? Did it, well, it was, make a difference? It did make a difference. Uh, it was covered nationally, and AB, it stirred the conscience of America's what it did, even though the vote was non-binding. I mean, ABC and CBS National News carried it on prime time. So it awakened people and said, you know, this war is still dragging on. It started in August of 1964, and here we were in 1971, and we're always hearing this myth about it, the light at the end of the tunnel, and how we're really winning the war. We weren't. So to see this on, it was like the impact of, um, you know, it was an awakening call to people and saying, hey, the war is still dragging on. Don't buy into that it's going to be over next week and that it's, uh, you know, justified. It's not, we need to stop it. Do what you can. Don't be complicit in silence. Well, you believe that we have to do more than talk, obviously, in, in order to create a peaceful world. Developing a, a peace economy and, and building a culture of nonviolence is, is part of your prescription. What do you mean by a peace economy? How, how, do, how do we go about developing a, an economy well, that's based on peace? Yeah, I think it's, it's so important uh, that we move from a war economy to a peace economy. This is, we're talking about now, a long-term a solution to violence, a long-term addressing of it. You know, President Eisenhower, to point out the problem, he gave a great quote, you know, I, I, I'm sure you may have heard this, every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and not clothed. We need an accountability of how we're spending the money. People will sometimes look to the space program and go, oh my God, we're not spending that at home. Well, we're looking in the wrong direction because the vast majority of our resources are going to new weapons, overruns on costs, new wars, and that are so unnecessary. Uh, we go to war way too easy. So we need it to you know, channel the genius and the, the talent that we have with the, our young people into a peace economy. So. What that means is the large Eisenhower, I gave that quote of Eisenhower, well, at the end of his second inaugural address, you know, he's the one that warned us about the military-industrial complex. That, exactly. Uh, yeah, the military will get in bed with the corporations for greed, for profit, and uh, we need to be aware of this danger. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. So there needs to be more accountability on the profits of the few at the expense of lives and the, our resources and that uh, for funds that should be used at home. And look at all the uh, injustice there is in America, you know, and the, the racial uh, situ divide and the need for more cancer research, et cetera. Uh, just even a, you know, a, a, a small percentage of what we're spending now, uh, we could do so much for our people here at home especially now, you know, with the added strain of the virus, we could be addressing more environmental needs, uh, the health care needs, our education needs, food for the hungry. And, you know, it's not just here, but when we do, let's make less military assistance and more assistance that's reflective of a peace economy. You know, I, I thought after the Vietnam War, all the demonstrations and the disaster of the Vietnam War and all the people that died, I thought it would be a hundred years before America surely got itself back.
back into another war. I was wrong, and I'm thinking yeah. you weren't alone. We 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 have established this war economy is a great contributing factor here. Yes, and one a creative idea that's been around for a long time is that people suggested possibly adding a Department of Peace to the president's cabinet. Yeah. And the purpose of that, they'd implement the change from a war economy to a peace economy. That would be a priority with them, and there'd be more accountability for how the Department of Defense is operating and spending our resources. Yeah. Yeah, there's a substitution for that peace uh, department. It's, it's the ISP, the Institute for, mm, I can't remember the, all the name, but it, it's uh, part of or sponsored by the federal government. Maybe the Institute for Peace? Yeah, thanks. I remember Eisenhower making that statement. You know, he could see it from the inside of the military and outside as a politician. But um, you believe nonviolent action changes both the individual and society. How does that happen? Well, you know, when I talk about these government uh, new suggestions for changing politics, et cetera, I don't want to neglect the individual. And when you say, uh, how does that happen? It's like, I really believe that peace on earth has got to follow peace alone. Each of us got, have to start with ourselves. I was moved by a quote from Gandhi who said, I'm not going to wait till I've converted the whole society to my view. I'm going to straight away make a beginning with myself. Uh-huh. The Dalai Lama talks like that too. You know, he says, uh, don't just look to uh, like the United Nations or America or whatever. Let's start with ourselves. Let's contribute. Uh, we can all do something. And I think we all take you know, examine our spirit because if we're unhappy or violent and that's what we have to pass on to others and we have to take a good inventory of ourselves so that we make, you know, our contribution through active love on a personal level too. Yeah, you talked about the Dalai Lama who made the statement, uh, participating in a peace movement not only changes society, but it changes yourself. But the Dalai Lama also advocates for opposing war waged by the U.S. Isn't that correct? It is. It is. And, I, you know, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense because uh, there's no reason why we have to just focus on ourselves or, or just focus on the outer picture. I'd say one of the faults of people I worked with in the peace movement was that a lot of times we got carried away with, you know, ex- externally, you know, complaining about problems on the outside without paying enough attention to how we were living our day-to-day lives. So I think that, you know, that's, uh, we got to heal ourselves in that respect, <clears throat> make it consistent. But I think it's, you know, when the Dalai Lama talks about individual responsibility, he also brings up a new notion of patriotism. We used to think that if you even question you know, maybe you were an unpatriotic troublemaker, but that's not what America stands for. We, if you have a problem, whether it's in a personal relationship or whether it's with the country, it needs to be addressed. It's not going to go away by itself. So that's the, you know, eventually we faced our racist policies and now we've got to put more attention as well, not just on that, but on war and not just on war, but on our social justice also. So, you know, it used to be people would say in the 60s, legitimately, they would say, don't confuse our dissent with our disloyalty, you know, with disloyalty. Don't call us unpatriotic just because we're questioning. Dr. King would say, I oppose the Vietnam War because I love America. Call freedom of speech. (laughs) There it is. So, Francisco, you're currently developing a book, a documentary, and a feature film on conscientious objection. 
why produce a book and a film on conscientious objection during a time in U.S. history when there is no military draft? Well, I don't want to see the draft come back. I mean, I feel, I really believe that the draft is totally incompatible with everything we stand for in America with democracy. It's a form of involuntary servitude. You know, it counters the principle of individual freedom. That's why you have many very conservative people and very liberal people working together to end the draft and keep it away. We've got to set the record straight on conscientious objection. That's one of the purposes of my book and films. But, you know, what I'm addressing is more than conscientious objection. I pay tribute to COs because still people don't know the contribution that COs made. Uh, they're not, they associate it with being a draft dodger. And the opposite is true with COs. They could have fled to a different country, like Muhammad Ali had that choice, and he could have faked his way out of the draft. But he didn't. He faced it and was willing to face prison. And so when COs aren't recognized, the public needs to understand, they willingly go to prison. That's the kind of sacrifice they've been making since the time of George Washington. So I want to pay tribute to that. Keep the draft out. Uh, because it's un-American in my view. And also, we need to, you know, move more toward a nonviolent society. You know, Bobby Kennedy used to speak about the violence in our society, especially after Dr. King was assassinated, and Bobby made an unforgettable speech, and he called attention and to our foibles with our society in the sense of catering to too much violence and institutionalizing it. He also called for you know, more of a peace culture. The way he put it, he would quote Aeschylus, to tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of our life. So we, those issues are very, as you know, very relevant today. And now we need to focus more. And I want to reach today's generation so that we're focused on alternatives to violence and a better life and a better world. You know, that's uh, one of the things that always bothered me is that the Peace Corps was not uh, given much uh, validity. And it seems that that should also be one of those patriotic things that was put out front in, for those CO, COs. And, uh, and it's not. It's not even heard of for the most part today. Absolutely. But it would seem to be one of, those, one of those really great patriotic kinds of uh, uh, options for, for people not only in the United States, but around the world. They, you know, that Peace Corps would take people around the world. Excellent point. You know, the way we relate to, it's a world community now, and the way we relate to other countries, there's an example of America being a moral example rather than just military means. We're the biggest arms traders in the world. You know, there are other ways. What happens, ends up happening, is we create resentment, and sooner or later, the weapons we've given out are used against us. And on a social level, there's tremendous backlash because the citizens of those countries have strong resentments, if not outright hatred, that we're intervening and invading their countries and supporting corrupt dictatorships. It's got to change. Gandhi's principle is at the heart of this, means and ends. We've got to make the way we do things consistent with the goals we want. Yeah, so, and we talked about the draft, and there is no military draft now, but the military is still recruiting our young people, and they use very effective methods. Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recognizes that, and she has introduced a measure as part of the appropriations bill. 
that will ban military recruiters from using video game streaming platforms to reach young people. Why is this bill important in times when there's no military drafts? Well, I, I fully support that measure. It's great. We consider it, you know, I don't know where to start with this. It's another example of the gaming of how the young are being influenced, you know, and I'd like to encourage your, your listeners to support this measure, you know, because, you know, they're, they're going for the teen market. You know, it's kind of like the way the cigarette manufacturers went after the young audiences to get them hooked their whole lives, you know, and we're talking about with the military recruiting, we're talking about life and death decisions and, you know, turning people in their, at a vulnerable point in their uh, decision-making years, you know, that they're still forming their opinions. Uh, so I'd like to encourage your listeners to look into that and support the measure. It's definitely a good step toward a nonviolent society. Yeah, that's a good step. Another solution toward ending violence. Francisco, that's, we have to make a statement here. You asked our listeners to support that measure. So we have to state it's FCC rules. That request is coming from you, our guest. It's not coming from uh, uh, either one of the co-sponsors, neither Jamie nor I. So that's your request. Yes, um, it is. I also want to add, uh, as my experience as a uh, public school teacher, I taught 31 years, in a public school system, two years as a, as a high school teacher. And I think the military recruiting as the way it is implemented in our high schools is very unfair to 18-year-old to students, many of them that have not, not acquired critical thinking skills, the skills that, that are needed to objectively evaluate the pitches from trained military recruiters and, and sophisticated, subjective, dramatic gaming video that the military is now producing. And the standardized test scores uh, support my, my observation. And the research conducted by the National Network opposing the militarization of youth demonstrates that few public or parochial high schools, for that matter, allow organizations that sponsor truth and recruiting presentations to acquire access to students. The uh, Jefferson County Public School System, uh, where we live, over 100,000 students. Truth and recruiting organizations are not allowed to contact students. So, but the military gains access to high school students through the ASFAB testing program, as well as other uh, venues. So, therefore, high school students are getting only one side of the picture. The high school students are asked to make one of the most important decisions of their lives, whether to join the military or choose some other option. They are asked to make this decision, giving a one-sided subjective perspective. I think it's just unfair for 18-year-old uh, students to, to have to make that decision, considering they're only getting one, one half of a picture from recruiters and from videos that are, are being produced to, to recruit students. U.S. military is currently involved in seven different military struggles, combat. Should we be out on the streets? Currently protesting U.S. involvement in, in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, Nigeria. Is this the time to protest? Well, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's healthy. The protest, just like Black Lives Matter, it's healthy that people are out in the street and seem with, uh, you know, bringing attention to uh, wars that they don't agree with. We, I, I want to point out, too, that when you mentioned about, you know, seven wars abroad, you know, there, again, 
there are other ways that we can interact with countries. You know, for an example that I think is a nonviolent means at our disposal is economic and trade sanctions uh, should be strengthened and given much more credence than they are today. We go uh, with military action far too easily. So, you know, when we're waging these wars, you know, we're not talking about just because we don't see the realities of the war. You know, we're talking about the loss of young lives on both sides. And most of the lives that are lost in war are civilian lives, men, women, and children. So we need to put, you know, pressure on economically. And, you know, I think we've underestimated the power of this means of, against tyranny. Uh, sanctions, you know, can be um, used against countries that sponsor terrorism, uh, that are guilty of human rights uh, violations, you know. And, you know, when you use nonviolent means like sanctions compared to war, no lives are on the line. So how do you feel, Francisco, about the United Nations, their role in reducing conflict around the world? Some have suggested the UN is not effective because of the way it is structured and it needs to be uh, restructured in a more democratic process so it has more influence. And it's, it's, it represents justice and fairness, which it does not now. What's your opinion? I would agree with that, but uh, you know something's better than nothing. It's like when we had no health care, and then uh, Obamacare came along, and people were criticized. And I, I'm going like, you know, some health care for 46 million Americans that are totally defenseless is better than nothing. You know, you can always improve things. And the same with the United Nations. The United Nations came along in October 24, 1945, the same year, ironically that we dropped the atomic bombs, which called that much more attention to the need for an organization like the United Nations. So I'm on board with increasing the strength of the UN and again, uh, using nonviolent means rather than military means to settle conflict. Yeah, I think that's definitely on board with strengthening the UN. Well, you know, the civil rights movements uh, are occurring all across the United States and cities everywhere, and even uh, even across the world, is this a time to protest U.S. military involvement, say in the Middle East, or uh, should the peace movement focus on building coalitions, like you said, uh, economically? Or coalitions are great. We're an international community. You know, a U.S. news report, if I can quote from that: the failures of the U.S. military assistance programs for far outpace the successes. Uh, and in 2016, the U.S. were proposing the provision of arms and training to 137 countries in 2017. That's arms and trade so training. So we've got to uh, reevaluate these programs. They don't have much accountability. And we've got to identify how much money DOD is spending on them. And US, the report from U.S. News says it's nearly impossible to get an accurate accounting. And as I mentioned before, Often our military equipment and funds end up in the wrong hands. We supply, you know, weapons that are used against us. Uh, they're used by countries like Saudi Arabia to help put down democratic governments. So there's got to be more accountability for sure. In Yemen, you know, our weapons were used to kill thousands of civilians. Inadvertently, what we're doing is we're creating a backlash effect, you know, and sometimes of course, completely unintentionally, we even promote terrorism because there's so much resentment and hatred for when uh, we just come in with uh, military solutions, when we should be dealing 
understanding, you know, promoting understanding and communication with the countries. Yeah. So I guess I think you get the, the drift here. Uh, you know, we've got to be asking questions like, uh, you know, is that government corrupt? We supported a corrupt dictatorship in South Vietnam. Uh, that was a big part of the Vietnam problem. Uh, and the resentment among even the South Vietnamese who were supposedly helping. You know, we've got to ask, is the civilian population strong? Does it need uh, economic peaceful support? Are there human rights abuses? We should take all these things into consideration uh, when we're uh, lending support. Just for a little information for ourselves and, and our listeners, what was the uh, uh, date on that uh, Newsweek article? Yeah, 2016 said the U.S. were proposing this and uh, the provision of arms trade to 137 countries in 2017. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, you shared uh, with us about your book. Would you, would you share some information about your documentary and, and your feature film on nonviolence? Thank you so much for asking. You know, it's very important. The two main things I would say we're promoting are social justice and then peace through nonviolence. Those are the core issues. Conscientious objection is included. Uh, and by the way, the, we talked about the United Nations. The UN have supported conscientious objection around the world as a basic human right. So uh, the book is called, and the same title with the films, I Refuse to Kill, The Power of Nonviolence. So I'm just trying to spread the word. What I did as a CEO and activist was nothing compared to the CEOs throughout American history who lost their freedoms and many of them lost their lives too. And we need to carry on and build a more nonviolent society. You know, my hope is that the best way we can bring out what's the best in our country and in ourselves is through nonviolence. Maybe I can close with, uh, oh, by the way, if people want to get involved at all in these projects and support in any way, the book, the doc, and the film, uh, do you mind if I give my email? No. I will hope you do. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It's, yeah, thank uh, you. Thank you. Francesco Productions one at gmail.com. And I'll spell Francesco and repeat it F R A N C E S C O Productions plural, the number one at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from anybody, and all the correspondence is kept private, but I'd love to hear from your listeners. If you don't mind, I'd like to, well, I'll, I'll let you. Is it a good time to close now, or no? We got we've got oh probably ten minutes here. Okay, well, so it, I, have, I have a great quote by Alice Walker. If I could throw it in now, sure. All right, she said the most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any. So um, that's why another good reason why I'd like to see us not underestimate the power we have within and apply principles of nonviolence, like making means and ends consistent. That's really one of the core principles that extends, you know, to a better life for individuals uh, so that we're not hypocrites to what we say we believe in. We're making the way we do something important. But it's also uh, so that countries don't become hip hypocritical to what they believe in. And uh, there's no greater arrogance than uh, violence. So uh, by making the means consistent nonviolently, you know, we're contributing to a better world. You know, going back to uh, the results of uh, violence and nonviolence in terms of military and, and things like the Peace Corps, it would seem really revealing 
to have some sort of comparison between, even if it were probably percentages, of what the military or the violence that the United States presents in other countries, uh, like selling the, the um, munitions and all that, but compare the results of the peace organizations like Doctors Without Borders and Peace Corps, of course, but a combination of all those kinds of uh, beneficial sharing of the United States uh, and, and, uh, and compared to you know, the violence of the military and, and that sort of thing, how that makes a difference you know, in real numbers. Yeah, I, I think that's excellent. And maybe from students that are listening, uh, you know, maybe this is going to be a topic for a thesis. It'd be great, a great one. If I can give an example of how nonviolence was much more effective than violence during <laughs> World War II, uh, the game, you know, when countries opposed Germany, Nazi Germany, they were crushed, especially the, uh, the smaller countries. And so what the Danes did, Denmark, they were very smart. They let Germany come in, invade, and then secretly underground, they smuggled uh, Jewish people out by the thousands. And they had the best record. I think they smuggled out at least like 7,000 Jewish people. So they didn't, they saved those lives. And how do they do it without using a single gun? So I think that's an example. Uh, a lot of people feel like maybe nonviolence isn't practical. Well, it's very practical. Uh, the humorous quote that I love from Joan Baez is that nonviolence is a big flop, but the bigger flop is violence. There's a there's a significant research that says uh, nonviolent revolutions are more effective than, than violent revolutions. So they are practical, yeah. And, and if you look at all the changes that are occurring right now as a result of the civil rights movement that's occurring in citizens and cities all over the country, things are changing. Nonviolent demonstrations do have an effect. Absolutely, uh, and they build rather than destroy. And I think um, it's from the individual level to our making our country better with nonviolence to making a better world for our children and our children's children. So, Francisco, what is the you, is your book out now? Uh, no, the book is complete, and I'm just tweaking it. And I'm proud to say that I have testimonials from the historian, the brilliant historian Noam Chomsky, Governor Michael Dukakis, people like that, Peter Yarrow, Peter Paul Mary. Remember him? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Peter wrote the introduction for the book. And, uh, you know, as you probably know, Peter Paul Mary performed when uh, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in 1963 in Washington, D.C. Yes. So uh, the book is finished, tweaking it. The doc is underway. We have uh, uh, some inspirational people in it, like the Dalai Lama and uh, Richard Dreyfus, who was also a conscientious objector and people like that. And the feature film script is complete. Uh, and then we're, now we're making our pitch around to major production companies for the film. Oh, I see. Okay. Where might we, uh, our listeners, uh, find some of your work in uh, journalism? Uh, well, I, I'd say um, the leading uh, magazines and newspapers. Uh, it's not like uh, a steady column or anything like that, or same with the photography. But on my website, uh, my photo website, francescoproductions1.com, there are the links to the publications that I'm published in, francescoproductions1.com. Okay. So if a production company decides to produce your film, can we get you back on here to at least announce uh, 
when that film is going to be produced and to the public. I'm there. I'm there. Thank you so much for that invitation. Okay. Uh, that's very, and by the way, I just want to, uh, on a personal note, uh, this is a great, great service you're providing. And when I talked about countering the culture of violence and changing, transforming, that's exactly what Solutions to Violence is doing. We hope so, but thank you. <laughs> We're, we are getting close to running out of time here. Uh, I have I have an inspirational quote at the end here if it's if there's time. Well, we're going to ask you. Do you have any final thoughts? Oh, thank you. We run out of time. Well, I admired Bobby Kennedy and I I supported him when he ran for president. And this is a quote that's inscribed as a memorial near his gravesite at Arlington National Cemetery, and it inspired me. And I wanted to share it with your listeners. Each time a man or woman, I'll add, stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice, he or she sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Francesca. It's been fascinating and uh, we'll look forward to having you back and uh, we'll just stay in touch. I'm very grateful for that, and uh, thank you to your listeners for being part of the program. Okay. One of the things we want to do want to mention is if they miss the actual broadcast, they can go to the archives and uh, pick it up there. Wonderful. So, listeners, we are out of time. Our guest today is journalist, author, and nonviolent activist Francisco da Vinci. Once again, thank you, Francisco, for joining us on this conversation with Solutions to Violence. Our program will be repeated Tuesday. August 3rd at 8 a.m. and Wednesday, August 4th at 6 a.m. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. Our program featuring Francesco da Vinci will be placed in the Forward Radio archives Wednesday, August 4th. To listen by way of our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org. Scroll to Program Archives and then choose Solutions to Violence program that, that features Francesco da Vinci. You'll want to have a look at the more than 100 other Solutions to Violence programs in the Forward Radio archives. For more information and a schedule of programming that features uh, surprises and delights for you, visit our forwardradio.org and choose Broadcast Schedule. You may want to respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Until next time, we're Jamie McMillan and Jim Johnson, your host for Solutions to Violence. Technical assistance has been provided by Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll leave you with one last thought. When historians pick up their pens to write the story of the 21st century, let them say it was your generation who laid down the heavy burdens of hate at last and that peace finally triumphed over violence, aggression, and war. Congressman John Robert Lewis. Thanks for listening.